The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from Revelation 2, 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira wrote, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her and her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good to see all of you. Good morning. Uh, If we haven't met before, my name's Garrison. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can go to what we just read, Revelation chapter 2. We'll pick it up where we left off last week in verse 18. Um, As you're flipping there, I'd love to pray for us this morning, and we'll get started. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, like Jackson already said, that we've been reconciled to you through your son, but also to one another. And this was a costly and meaningful gift. We thank you that that is why we get to sit here and sing to you and sit under your word. Pray that you would be with us this morning as we dive into yet another heavy text. Know that you love us. Spirit be with us. In your name, Jesus. Amen. If you're just hopping in with us, we're continuing uh, our fall series looking at the first couple chapters of the book of Revelation. We've got John, the last living apostle of Jesus. He's in exile and he has a vision. And Jesus comes to him and he says, Write seven letters to seven churches in the seven cities that make up the ancient Roman postal route. And so far we've looked at three churches, and every week we sort of landed with these gut punch uh, questions. With week one we looked at Ephesus and we asked, have we abandoned our love of Jesus? And second week we looked at Smyrna and asked, are you willing to suffer for Jesus? And last week, looking at Pergamum, we asked, where are we compromising with our sin? And this week, as you look at the map, we're going to be looking at a church in a city that was fairly close to Pergamum, about 30 miles uh, southeast of there with this city of Thyatira, which might be the hardest one to pronounce. Thyatira. Now, before we get into the text and what Jesus says to this church, I'd like to do what we do uh, thus far, which is to talk a little bit about the city. So the city of Thyatira was the smallest. It was the smallest by far, and many consider it to be the least important. It wasn't a political powerhouse 
Uh, you wouldn't naturally visit there. There were no marvels of architecture. It was a trade city, and it was known as a trade city. It was a blue-collar town is what you could describe it as. Many, uh, many of the people I studied, uh, they compared it to Ephesus. They, they would say if Ephesus was like a, a Los Angeles or a New York City, then Thyatira was like Detroit, but smaller. Some even said Flint, Michigan, but that just felt really mean. So we went with Detroit. It's just not a place that you would visit. It wasn't a nice city. It was a trade city known for its trading guilds. At the time, if you were a tradesman or woman, someone who worked with metals or construction or cloth work or dyes, you would have to join one of these guilds in order to work at all. Membership was required in order to work and to sell your goods. Now, these guilds were not just labor unions. They were more than that. They functioned as a place of worship as well. All of the guild meetings, which took place every couple weeks, they were hosted by the pagan temples. And uh, the, the agenda was pretty much the same every single week. There would be a huge feast where the food would be sacrificed to whatever god of the temple would be. There would be tons of wine, which resulted in lots of drunkenness. And the central part of the worship there would be the orgies. These temples had temple prostitutes that were basically there for the worshipers to do whatever they wanted to with. And if you remember, the majority of these cities, including the Christians, are basically required to be a part of these guilds if they want to make any money. So you could imagine why this would be such an issue for this church, which I think it's worth noting if you're like, that sounds familiar. Almost all of these churches are going through the same thing. This is just what the church in the ancient world was up against. Each church has really similar themes. They're in these cities that are steeped in idol worship, and each church is, is pushed to worship the idols of the city, or they're sort of threatened, like, or else. Each church was pressed to conform, or else. And this church in Thyatira was no different. Thyatira was a blue-collar city steeped in sexual sin and idol worship. Now let's see what Jesus has to say for them. Let's pick it up in verse 18. Jesus writes, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, whose eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Sounds amazing. They're killing it. This church is full of love and faith and service and endurance. They're, they're even getting better as they go, right? He says your latter works exceed the first. This church sounds like the opposite of Ephesus, who had abandoned their first love. That's not this church. They're full of love. They're doing great, it would seem. I, I would love for these verses to be written about us. Jesus says your works are good. You love one another. You love me. You have faith in me. You pray. You're spiritually disciplined. You serve each other and the poor. You endure. You're growing in maturity. But, as we've seen in these letters so far, Jesus tends to start with the good when he gives the bad. Let's see it. Verse 20, he says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. So here's the problem. An ungodly 
influence has infiltrated this church. And we don't, we don't know the specifics, but we do know that there was a woman who was a false teacher, and she was calling herself a, a prophetess. It's important to note, this woman's real name was not Jezebel. Jezebel is a, a symbolic name. And at the time, if you heard someone called Jezebel or a Jezebel, you would think this person's controlling. They're manipulative, even seductive, and definitely dangerous. What the name Jezebel is, is a reference back to the book of Kings in the Old Testament. She's introduced in 1 Kings 16, if you want to read about it. Her story kind of takes place over six or seven chapters. And who she was is she was a wife of King Ahab. And King Ahab was one of the worst kings in the history of Israel. When they get married, she influences him to outlaw worship of God and instead institute worship of this God called Baal. And Baal worship was constantly an issue for the Israelites. And to put it simply, Baal worship was one of the worst and egregious things to happen in the Old Testament. These priests of Baal were perverse. They introduced temple prostitution into the very temple of God. They introduced child sacrifices. So the god Baal was partly seen as the god of fertility and good luck. So if you wanted those things, what you would be called to do is to sacrifice your firstborn son, to put him to death so that you could have good luck and fertility. Jezebel's influence was a horrific time in Israel. And so what Jesus is saying... He's saying what this woman is doing in this church is like what Jezebel did in Israel. She's teaching that idol worship is okay, that worshiping these other gods is fine, that sexual immorality is okay as well. Let's see what Jesus is going to do about it. Verse 21. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give each of, each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. Very strong language, is it not? Now, in order to get what's going on here, we have to see that there's actually two groups that are being addressed here, that are being addressed by Jesus, and it's really key to see who is who. So the first, I think, is more clear. It's Jezebel and her followers. She's a false teacher. She's apparently seduced a portion of this church into practicing sexual morality and idol worship. And if you're like, what is she actually teaching? Most scholars think it was pretty similar to what we saw last week in Pergamum. Most think that she might even be a Nicolaitan herself, which is essentially teaching, you can worship Jesus and follow Jesus and do whatever you want. You can have Jesus plus anything. And Jesus says judgment is coming for her and her followers because they refuse to repent. They refuse to change. And that group matters, and they're important, but all of that is what we covered last week with compromise. This week we're focusing on this other group, which is really the rest of the church. And it's a little confusing how it's written, because it kind of runs together, but it's clear there's a side who hasn't gone along with Jezebel. The language between the two is different. 
So with Jezebel and her followers, they're referred to as they and them and her. But this group is the you that Jesus keeps referencing. The, the believers that he says, you are loving and faithful and good. You don't hold to the teachings of Satan. I lay on you nothing else. Like we said, it would seem that they're doing great. That's it. Hold fast. We're done. But that's not it. Look back at verse 20. Jesus says, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. You tolerate her. So the core issue in this church that Jesus has is that they tolerate. It's their tolerance. So Thyatira is the church there. Their issue is that they're the tolerant church. They tolerate that woman Jezebel. They tolerate the false teaching and the idolatry. Now, when you hear that, tolerance, at first it's like, what's the problem? That sounds, that's fine. Tolerance is a good thing. Why is this an issue? In our culture, tolerance is talked about as a great thing. Like, it's a, it's a good thing. It means that you're loving and open-minded. To not be tolerant is what I would say we're all afraid of as Christians. To be a bigot. And I don't want to be that. If you're not tolerant, that's what you are. You're a closed-minded bigot. So to be tolerant, as our culture would say, is to be approving and accepting of anyone or anything. You're open-minded, and that's a good thing. Our culture loves this. But according to Jesus, tolerance in the church isn't that great of a thing, especially in regards to sin and false teaching. It's not a good thing at all. And if you don't believe me, let's just talk about the language. Let's get specific on it. That word tolerate comes from the Greek word aphiemi. What it is, is a compound word of the word apo, which means from, and hiemi, which means descend, and to send. And when you put the two together, it means to send forth or to let go. So in Greek literature, aphiemi oftentimes was used to describe the release of a prisoner when they're being released and no more control is being exercised over them. They're no longer being hindered to do what they want. So Jesus is saying to this church, you tolerate Jezebel. What he means is you're letting this false teacher go unchecked. You're just letting her go. You're letting her go and allowed her to teach falsely, to rally a group of Christians and to lead them into sin, to worshiping idols. And meanwhile, the rest of the church is just standing by. They're saying, okay, they're not stepping in. If I had to sum it up, this church, in the face of sin and false teaching, they're just sort of holding their hands up. They're saying, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to say? Or this isn't really my problem, that's on them. Now, the question that comes up when I tell you that tolerance is bad, and what they're doing is bad, is sort of like, well, what, what should they have done? Like, isn't the alternative just really me and judgmental? I don't want to do that. So let's talk about it. How is the church supposed to deal with things like this, false teaching and sin? I'll give you a few verses that make up a, a pretty large theme in the New Testament. This is 2 Timothy 2.16. It's Paul writing. He says, But avoid a reverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. I want you to pay attention to both what he's calling out and the fact he's specific. He calls out two people by name. 
2 John 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. That teaching is the gospel, truth, teachings of scripture. Let me give you one more, Ephesians 5, 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Let's make up a really big theme throughout the New Testament, and really the whole Bible. So what do we do with unrepentant sin and false teaching in the church? Well, in the church, we deal with it. We expose it. We call people out. There's a huge emphasis on this, that the church is supposed to hate sin and false teaching. So much so that we would even avoid those living in unrepentant sin and unwilling to change. We're called to expose it because of how dangerous it is to us individually and to the body. And to not is to be what Jesus says, to be tolerant of sin, to be tolerant of false teaching. And when the church fails to follow what the biblical commands are for how we're supposed to address this, then it will become a tolerant church. And that's what happened with Thyatira. Now, in, in my study for this sermon, uh, a lot of pastors and theologians, they would talk about this and they would try to get into the why. Why is this happening with this church? And they admit it's pretty much all speculation. We don't know the exact reasons why we weren't there. But most say would, would say compromise or they were even too loving. We don't know. But, but here's the thing. This, this problem has not gone away. It hasn't disappeared from the church and from our church. We may not know why they weren't calling out the false teacher and dealing with the unrepentant believers, but we can talk about why maybe we wouldn't. So I want to give you three reasons why tolerance grows in the church and our church and let this sort of be like a, a pastoral charge to us. So I'm going to give you three reasons. The first reason that tolerance grows and can grow is because we lack discernment. We lack discernment. So very simply, we end up handling sin and false teaching incorrectly because we don't know. We don't know what's right or wrong. We're not familiar enough with the scriptures. We lack discernment. We lack wisdom. Now, I want to I be specific about this because we kind of have to know how does false teaching actually come up in 2023? To my knowledge, there's no Jezebel doing a second service after this in the basement. If I'm wrong, let me know, please. We can't let Jezzy in here. But I, I would argue that's not really how this works, necessarily. Can, but I think there's many other ways that this shows up much more commonly. And, and I would argue the biggest way is through the thing in your pocket or in your purse. Our phones. You have access to every piece of information basically to have ever existed, and you can have access to it in seconds, right? We have social media where we're in front of people, influencers, other people, our friends, teaching us how to live. This is how you should live. This is how you should be. This is what's good. This is what's bad. We're taught in a thousand different ways every day. This is how you should treat people. This is how you should spend your money. This is how you should spend your time. And then there's all sorts of stuff in there. Not, not all of it isn't bad necessarily, but how much of it actually runs contrary to Jesus? And we don't know because we're spending more time with this than we are in our Bibles. Add in your time with 
friends and uh, fellow workers and maybe even in front of a TV show or whatever media, and you're constantly getting messages. You're constantly being taught something, and much of it is false teaching. And it, it doesn't necessarily have to be messages about how you should live. It can be messages about how to interpret the scriptures. A lot of it is false teaching about the Bible and theology. I'll give you a couple popular ones that the church is dealing with today all over the place. There's more than two genders. You are what you identify with. That's false teaching. Two women or men can be together or married and God's okay with it. It's false teaching. You can have sex before marriage. You can date whoever you want. You can live together. It's sort of like a tryout. It's a very good idea. It's okay as long as you love each other. It's false teaching. God will bless you with health and wealth as long as you give and try your best, as long as you're a good person. That's the prosperity gospel. It's false teaching. Now, I want to be clear, every single one of these topics that you could preach a whole sermon on, and when they come up in conversation, they need to be uh, addressed with compassion and grace. But let's not swing so far into compassion and grace that we miss the truth, right? These are lies. False teaching. And we have to call a spade a spade. Even if I want to be loving, I don't want to hurt your feelings. But I can't lie. And the correct way to deal with it is to call it out, albeit with grace and kindness. So we lack discernment. Second one, second reason, is that we think judging is bad. We think judging is wrong. So don't judge me. Who are you to judge? Christians shouldn't judge. We should love. You've probably all heard that before, maybe even said it yourself. When that's used as a blanket statement, it's actually more wrong than right. The Bible has much more to say about judgment than just don't judge. Let me show you one that I think is really interesting. This is 1 Corinthians 5. It's Paul writing again. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. He's saying non-Christians, non-believers, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since that would mean you need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing you, to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? We would like to cut off there. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That's a hard one. It's Paul writing to this church in Corinth. The context is that there's a believer, a actual Christian, a member of this church that's been living in sexual sin with his father's wife, his stepmother. Paul says he's unrepentant. That's, that matters. That's meaningful. He's unrepentant, and therefore he needs to be removed from church membership, that we cannot be associated with this. We cannot let this into the church, that the church is to judge and to remove those living contrary to the ways of Jesus and are unrepentant. 
Now he's, he's clear. He's not talking about unbelievers, but those inside of the church. And he's very clear about it. We do judge those inside. Well, this gets interesting. What do we make of that? Because the verse I know the best is judge not, lest you be judged. We know that one. That's Jesus in Matthew 7. That, everybody loves that verse. Even non-Christians know that one. They'll use it against you. Is that a contradiction? It sort of feels like it. Well, it's not. Biblically, there's a right and wrong way to judge, but there's not a blanket statement. Wrong judgment is self-righteous judgment. It's judging according to man-made standards. Hypocritical judgment. These are, this is what Jesus is teaching against. He's rebuking the Pharisees, the religious leaders who are living in hypocrisy and self-righteousness, making up standards, creating new laws. We're not to judge superficially, just looking at someone and making a judgment call about them. We're not to judge harshly and unforgive, with unforgiveness. That is what we're not supposed to do. That's what we're warned against. But that's not what Paul is calling us to when he says to judge. He's saying judge other Christians according to the standards that the Scriptures establish for other Christians. There are standards there. You don't throw them out. He's saying judge according to the things that as believers we've all committed to doing. As believers, this is how we're supposed to live. And do it with a heart, this is just as important, do it with a heart that desires repentance on behalf of the person, that desires reconciliation on behalf of the person. In other words, Christians are called to judge explicitly sinful behavior and false teaching in other Christians. How? By calling it out and calling them to repent. That's what good judgment is exposing it. Come back. You're wrong. Let's talk about it. Repent. And that's where this church in Thyatira got it wrong. They weren't addressing the false teaching and the sin in the church. Don't get it twisted. The problem was not that they weren't mad enough at what was going on at the, at the temples, at the guild parties. Not that that's great. We know that that's sinful. But the problem is not that they were tolerating pagan worship out there. It's that they were tolerating in here in the church. And part of the way they could have avoided this is by doing what Paul says, what the scriptures say, judging other Christians. Now, very practically, we can do this. We can start to do this this week. We can do it in our groups. I'll give you a couple examples. If someone in your group has confessed the same thing every week for months, and they uh, haven't taken any steps towards repentance, well, let's call it out. Let's check ourselves first, right? Remove the log. But don't just remove the log and then be like, I'm done. I'll leave you there. No. Call them out. Not self-righteously, but with concern for their soul. If someone tends to minimize the gravity of their sin, right? It's just a struggle. I just sort of fell into it again. Well, let's remind them of what the scriptures say about what sin is. Your sin is not a struggle. It is a wicked, bent heart away from the ways of God, right? It's idolatry. It's rebellion against God. It's a declaration of war. And I need you to see that because you're too okay with this. And I think that's why you're not repenting. I don't think you hate your sin enough. 
not self-righteously. If someone says something in group that you know directly contradicts God's word, and they're not like a new person, like they've been around, they're a member of our church, well, say something. We'll just let it go. Say, hey, that's off. That is off. What are you, what are you reading? Can we look at this together? Because here's what I see in the Bible. Let's talk about it. We have to be willing and open to do this. Because what we're called to. We have to call out sin and false teaching to know what's right and wrong and then to tell someone where they're off. Here's our last one. We tolerate sin in the church and other believers because we tolerate our own sin. We tolerate our own sin. This might be the biggest reason we do this. We tolerate the sin in others because who am I? What am I supposed to say? Like, I don't want to call you out on your anger problem or your lust or your apathy or anxiety because I'm doing the same things. I don't want to be a hypocrite. And that's definitely true. That's part of it. But I'd actually say the bigger reason that we tolerate and what the sin we tolerate in our own hearts is that we tolerate the sin of approval and comfort in ourselves. We tolerate a... a, a Approval idol, comfort idol. I don't want to step in. I don't want to say the things. Because what, what, what are they going to think? What if it's tense? What if there's conflict? What if it goes bad? And I, I've seen this a lot, to be honest with you. Uh, over the years uh, being in ministry and, and pastoring, I've had, it sort of feels like the same conversation over and over again, but that's okay. Where it's like, hey, Garrison, I've noticed this thing. Where I want some advice Here's where this person is off. Here's how they've hurt me. Here's how they've hurt someone else. This is how they've sinned. This is what they've said, and I don't think it's in line with the scriptures. They're theologically off in this way. And I just, I don't not listen, but I just have the question already queued up. It's like, have you talked to them? And usually the answer is no. Or it's like, yeah, 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 I did. But I'll tell you what that means. It means not. It, it means that we made a passive-aggressive joke. And I, I confess that because I do that all the time. It's my friend's least favorite thing about me, probably. Don't nod your head. Um, we don't talk. And, and so I'll, I'll leave it be. I'll say, you should go talk to them. And then I'll follow up, or they'll come back. And same problem. Has it gotten better? No. Have you talked to them? No. All right. You know, it's, easy, it's really easy to think that this is a personality thing. It's like, I'm just not very confrontational. That is not true. That can be true, but it's not just that. It is also sinful. It's idolatry. It's an idol of approval and comfort. It's the same thing that Jezebel is leading these people to do. Although maybe we're not bowing down to Baal or whatever the Greek or Roman God is, but we're bowing down to approval and to comfort rather than King Jesus, which I get. It's hard to do this. I want to be liked. I don't want to be uncomfortable. But we have to see that Jesus, writing this letter to this church, he could be writing the same thing to us. Your works are good. You give. You show up to group. You serve. You confess your own sin. You ask good questions of other people. You're spiritually disciplined. You keep the Sabbath. You pray, but you sit back and you let things slide that you shouldn't. 
I have this against you. You care more about your own comfort than my glory and my church. You care more about being approved of than obedience. And actually, you care more about both than loving people. Because that's what this is. We have it in our mind that to be loving is to, to let it go, but that's not true. Because if I'm off, the, the best thing you can do for me is to tell me. We feel very strongly if there's something in our teeth, right? I want friends that tell me if there's something in my teeth, but we don't want friends to tell us if there's something in our hearts. We need this. Do you see this in yourself? Do you understand that if Jesus could write this letter to this church that's full of all of this good stuff, then he could say the same things to us. Those who would maybe say on any given week, I'm doing well. I'm in the word. I'm doing the disciplines this week. I'm doing really well. But we tolerate this sin in our own hearts and every week when we go to group in our church family. So sure, we may not have a Jezebel running around and people running off to these guild parties, but we're still tolerant. We're still tolerant in our very own way, and every bit of tolerance is dishonoring to Jesus. That's, that's the bad news. I told you we'd get into that. Let's, let's start to close. I won't say this is where I'm going to end, but this is where we're going to start to end with the good, the promise, just like every week. Jesus shows what he's got against them, and then he holds out a hand to invite them towards redemption. Let's look back at verse 26. The promise. He says, The one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, then I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we get these two beautiful promises to this tolerant church. He says those who are tolerant are invited to repent by keeping the works of Jesus. What are those? Everything we just talked about. This is the way to do it. And those who do will first be given authority. He compares the, the type of authority that these people will have to the authority he's going to have himself, this language of a rod of iron and broken pots. It's a direct quote from Psalm 2, which is a, a promise of the Messiah who will rule the nations. So the first promise is that we're going to rule with Jesus. We'll rule and reign with him. But also, the thing is, if we want to rule with him, we've got to obey him now. We have to follow him. We've got to be faithful to him. So somehow, part of the preparation for us being co-rulers with Christ is us following in this now, participating in church discipline and confrontation. But secondly, the second promise, I think this is the beautiful. As I said, they'll receive the morning star. It's another reference to a prophecy in Numbers 24. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It's a promise of the future Messiah. Jesus is the morning star. And these conquerors will be given himself, given Jesus. It's this imagery that we'll have access to Jesus forever in his presence. We'll live and reign with him in eternity. But it also means that we'll have access to the highest reward possible. 
his approval, the comfort of his presence, that he'll look at us. And like he says in Matthew 25, he'll say, well done, my good and faithful servants. It's amazing news, which I I just want us to see clearly. There's a reason that this is the promise for the tolerant church and for us, because it's exactly what we're after. We're after approval. We're after comfort. That's what we want when we're tolerant. We tolerate sin because we're afraid. We want someone to not like us or be offended by us. We're after comfort and approval, but these are shallow comforts and shallow, unsatisfying approval. And Jesus says, I'll offer you the real thing, the thing that you're after, the real comfort of my embrace. And he offers this both as a future reward. He says, to those who conquer. But we know from the scriptures it's offered now. This is what's offered to us in the gospel. It's a present reality. The wonder of the gospel is that right now, because of Jesus, we are, as the scriptures would say, more than conquerors. That God looks at us and says, I love you. You, good enough. I'm pleased with you. Not because we're actually conquerors. Not because we're actually pleasing. But because Jesus is. He was is and was way more than that. And when you actually see that he's made all of that true about you in the gospel, that's when you can actually lay down these idols. That's when you can actually say, I I don't need these anymore. I've found the thing. You can actually become what he says, a conqueror by keeping his ways because I'm so satisfied in Christ. I don't need this approval. I don't need this comfort. I have it in him. If we do this, one day we'll wake up in glory and he'll say, well done. Well done. You did it. You were faithful. You were pressed when it was hard. You didn't just let sin go in your life and in those around you. You fought. Well done. But it starts with this, the gospel. What's true of you and offered to you now. Take it. So let me me end as we have every week with a question. Are you tolerating sin and false teaching? Are you tolerating sin and false teaching? Where where have you lacked discernment? Where do you need to get in the Word? What questions do you need to figure out? Where have you been unwilling to judge and step in? Where do you tolerate your own sin? Maybe, Maybe let's get more specific. Have you been afraid to press in to that person in your group who you know's been apathetic, not reading their Bible for months because you're like, I'm sort of in the same place. Have you maybe let another believer, a friend or family member get away with a racist comment? Have you let that person in your community group go another week confessing sexual sin? Have you let your roommate gossip about their coworkers or a person in their community group? Where are you tolerating sin and false teaching? I would say for all of us, let's repent. I would say we're all guilty of this. In one way or another, let's together look to Jesus this week, who already approves of you, who already offers you comfort and invites you back to keep his works, to actually follow him in the way that we love one another. Let's repent of our tolerance. Let me pray for us. Father God, we need you. Let me thank you that you're there. You send the helper. 
God, to those who lack discernment, Spirit, we, we pray that you would help them, give them discernment, lead them into and through your word, shape their minds and their hearts. For those of us who are afraid of judging, who don't want to judge, give us boldness. Help us to see that your word pushes us here not to be jerks, but to be kind and, and loving friends and brothers and sisters and help all of us see where we're tolerating sin and false teaching. Convict us and lead us into truth and into your ways. We thank you that all of this is possible because of your grace to us. That you're constantly inviting us back into repentance, into your love and grace and relationship with you. Be with us, Lord, we pray it all in your name, Jesus. Amen.